Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word. We thank you that you have provided for us life and given us an instruction manual in which to guide us through this life. We pray that you would help us to cling to it. For there are many days of sorrow which may lie ahead for us, but we have hope that you are the one who brings blessing, the only one who can. And so, Father, we'll trust in you for that. We pray that as we approach this week, Christmas, that we'd be reminded of why we gather together as believers, why we're in your word, the purpose of the fellowship of the saints. And Father, we know that you will instruct us in this even more as we go through your word, but we ask that you would provide for us not only the knowledge, but wisdom in order to apply it. So we thank you, Lord, for salvation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We pray that you would bless all of these at this Christmas time, in Jesus' name, amen. We are currently in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and if you have a Bible or electronic Bible you'd like to open up, that would be great. We're probably going to go back to verse 1 again, even though we got to verse 6 last time. Now, in chapter 10, there seems to be a, a change in the tone of the letter which Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Some say... It is actually a part of a different letter that was written. In his tone, he seems to be getting right in the face of those to whom he is addressing the letter. Almost a defiant aggressiveness that is there, uh, getting on their case, so to speak, as we get into the chapter. Matthew 12, verse 34, tells us that as... Uh, we speak the abundance of the heart, it, it comes out our mouth. And that verse, it says, you brood of vipers, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, how can you who are evil say anything good for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks? So what Paul is feeling on the inside ends up coming out, not verbally, but in his written letter. And you can often tell what's taking place in the heart by what is spoken or written. written the tenor, the pitch, the volume in an oral conversation reveals what is going on in the heart. For instance, if I said something like, oh, come on, you'd think I was talking to a child or someone who is younger that I want to encourage them to come. But if I said it, oh, come on, that's completely different because of the tone, the tenor, the inflection, the volume. Or if I said, lovely to see you, but then turned and said, lovely to see you. Or how about, you better not. Or if I said, you better not. Or how about, stop it. (laughs) Instead of, stop it. You see how the difference in tone and inflection is, is given when somebody speaks from the heart? The same thing happens in letters. You can write a letter that is very terse very curt, and the person gets the message, especially if you use exclamation points. Or it can be very endearing. Well, in this particular letter, it's not so endearing. Paul uses some strong language here. My father, uh, when I was growing up, he used to have a way of calling me and my three brothers that would cause even the neighbor kids to scatter. Uh, When he would come out the door, he would call us and, 
Oh, it's Mr. Botker, you know, and they, they would have to take off as well. And Paul changes his tone in this portion of the letter, and definitely he's making a stern point. Chapter 9 would have been a nice place to end the letter because of the gracious tone that is at the end. You know, he's been talking to them about um, stepping up to the plate. They said they were going to give some money, and this would be good if you guys did this. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, he says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so it seems like, well, that would be a good place to end it. But it seems like there's this definite change which takes place in chapter 10. And this has caused some scholars to believe that this is part of a different letter. Now, these scholars have theorized that there's not only three, but maybe four different letters, and we just have two of them. Now, if you have your Bible, you can refer back to Second Corinthians chapter 2, and in verse 1, and he makes reference to another letter. And here he says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? but you whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depths of my love for you. So he wrote something that seemed to be a little more curt, again, a little more terse, that we really don't have access to. Also, turn over to Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8. <clears throat> and there he makes reference to this other letter. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Now, there's nothing really in First Corinthians that would cause them to experience tremendous sorrow. Though I did not regret it, I see that my letter hurt you but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So it appears that there were at least three letters that have been written, maybe four, depending on how you interpret Second Corinthians two one and Second Corinthians chapter seven verse eight. So this is how we want to kind of look at this. If you have First Corinthians as a letter, that's a whole letter. It, it stands by itself. Second Corinthians would be Second Corinthians chapter ten through thirteen, and then Third Corinthians would be Second Corinthians chapter one through nine. You follow me on that? And so from 10 to the end of the, the book, chapter 13, it seems to be a whole different tone, a whole different letter. And that would have been the one possibly that was in between because of the type of language that Paul starts to use. And then Second Corinthians chapter 1 through 9 would be actually Third Corinthians. And I want to let you know this is just a possibility. We have no manuscript evidence for this. But there is a chance, because of the tone, that this is what actually is taking place. And we just now have the two letters that Paul wrote. 
Now, the reason this book was written was, first of all, to clarify why he changed his plans to go to Corinth. If you remember, when we started out the book, he he told them why he was delayed. And then secondly, he wrote to unify the body, to bring back an individual who had been caught in sin. We think that from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who was sleeping with his father's wife or his stepmother, that he had repented and yet they had not restored him. So he's wanting to bring unity back to the church and also unity between the church in Corinth and the church in Jerusalem by them following through with their uh, desire to give a gift and help the people in Jerusalem. And then also he wanted to verify in the minds of his uh, readers the fact that he was in in fact the apostle that God had sent to them because there were these other Uh, individuals there, some say they were the Judaizers, some say they were the Gnostics, that were doing a disservice not only to Paul but to the ministry. And Paul was absent at this time, so he writes this letter to reestablish he is the one that God called, not that he is anything in and of himself, but God called him to that particular work, just like he did to Ephesus and Berea and Philippi. All these churches, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he was the one to establish all of these churches. Now, the teachers that attacked Paul, uh, they did so probably because they were jealous of his success in establishing those churches that I just talked about. And they were not preaching Christ out of pure motives, but mostly out of selfish, impure motives, and they meant to bring harm to Paul. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul had experienced this. If you uh, take your Bible, you want to turn over to Philippians chapter 1, we see there that there are people that are preaching Christ, and some are preaching it out of pure motives, and some with not so pure of motives. Beginning in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. So there are actually people preaching to stir up trouble for Paul and make his life miserable. Now imagine that. In the church, brothers are teaching, and some are doing it for good motives, and some are doing it just to spite Paul, the Apostle Paul. You know, it's kind of like a family. Now, I grew up in a family with four boys, uh, all four of us, and I should say that I groaned up in a family of four boys. Because we, you know, we'd get along part of the time, and part of the time we didn't get along. Uh, the oldest brother kind of picked on the younger brothers. I was number three, and I picked on my youngest brother, and it was just a tradition until we all got older. And then once we got older, there was this sense of respect that was between all of us. I can remember one time, and I was just a kid. I was 
below 10. I went in the backyard and I dug this hole out of a, a, underneath this Brazilian pepper tree that was there. And I, it was about a foot deep. And I thought, well, I'm going to fill this up with water. And so I filled up the hole with water, and that was fun. And then I decided to take some dry dirt and throw some dry dirt over the top, and it didn't soak in very quickly. It was really dry. And so it looked like the rest of the backyard underneath the tree. So I went and got my younger brother, and I said, step right there. And he did. He stepped right there, and his foot got all wet. His shoe was all wet, and I just kind of laughed. He goes, what would you do that for, you know? Another time, uh, we had this BB gun. We had a pellet gun, and we have pump BB guns, and where 805 is, we used to go there, and we would you know, shoot at rabbits and things like that, and it was just being mischievous. It, it wasn't anything good, and we would have BB gun fights. Um, my, my younger brother again, you know, we decided we we're going to have a BB gun fight. I had a pump BB gun. And that thing was powerful, you know, that it would send, you could see the BB going and how it just slide through the, the air. And so he was in some bushes and I shot into the bushes and I just hear this blood curdling scream come out. I knew I'd hit my target, you know, and, and he was trying to shoot at me. And another time he was in the kitchen and I had the BB gun pistol in my hand and I was just pointing it at the ground because you always want to point things away. And it was kind of next to his shoe, and he looks at me just with this scowl, and he says, go ahead. I said, okay. And I shot his foot, you know, right on his foot. Well, we did things like that all the time. We, we were mischievous, but we're still family, and we respect each other, and, and that is good. And I even can say, uh, even at this point in time, I love my brothers. You know, but in the church, I think it's the same way. We'll take a BB gun and we'll shoot somebody in the foot just to cause them a little bit of trouble. It's like in the body of Christ, we have a bunch of sinners that are all together trying to get along. And we have to fight the impulses of the flesh in order to do so. And we are mostly stuck in our ways, even from the very youngest of ages. Uh, we could tell when our children are born the day that they were born, when we saw them, the personality traits just immediately came out once they came out of the womb. We, and one of our children, Patty and I looked at each other and, oh, no. And another one we looked at and it was, oh, so sweet. you know. And, and we could just kind of tell on that first day what they were going to be like. And so we, we all have our personality traits that are actually part of who we are. And the ones that are fleshly and carnal, we're supposed to suppress and actually crucify as we go through our lives. But in the church, uh, and I got this from another pastor. I thought it was really good. And so I'm going to give it to you. Uh, this pastor uh, I listened to, he used a little humor to describe a family of a church, like the conflict that arises, and it's called the Tate family. And in the church, the Tates, every church has at least one member of the Tate family, and several churches have many more members. For instance, there's old man Dick Tate, who wants to run everything. Then there's Uncle Rotate, who wants to change everything. Then there's Sister Agitate who wants to stir up trouble with the help of her husband, Irritate. And whenever new projects are suggested, there is hesitate.
meditate and his wife vegetate and they want to wait until next year. And then there's Aunt Imitate who wants our church to be like all other churches and Devastate who provides the voice of doom if we move forward on something and while Potentate wants to be the big shot in the church. And the black sheep of the family who has completely cut himself off from the church, we know that it we have all these different that that segregate or that that's the individual who would say, I want nothing to do with the rest of the people in the church. And they take off. And, and so we have all these different kinds of individuals. And you may know somebody like that that is in the church. And if they are, they're still our brothers and sisters. But we get into battles, it seems like. But there were Tates, the family of Tates in Corinth as well. Now, Second Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 1, Paul starts here, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. Now here, he is kind of throwing this back in the face of those who are in the church of Corinth who say, Oh, Paul is timid and he's bold in his writings, but in person he's not much. I beg you that when I come, I may not be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So demolishing strongholds is talking about reasoning, demolishing arguments, which are barriers, and then false pretensions, pretensions, excuse me, pretension. It's a false appearance or action intended to deceive. These three things come from worldly philosophy where somebody comes into the church and they're a great orator in the Greek tradition, you know, it was all about being able to debate and philosophize and, and set forth your word with eloquence where people would just be drawn to you. And there were people that were coming into the church that were like that. And they were actually leading people astray. Remember first Corinthians, uh, this idea that a man has his father's wife and are you not proud? Somebody was teaching that it's okay, this antinomian lifestyle where you take everything which is lawful and moral and you say we're to do away with that and we're just to live a profligate life, uh, giving in to all the sensual indulgences that we can and that is the life that Christ would have you live. And Paul is saying, no, that is not the life Christ would have you live. And then there's also the Judaizers who would say you have to keep the Old Testament law as well as the New Testament and follow Christ. And I know people like that today who say you have to follow the Old Testament law, that God wants us to do that, that they say that Christ has not abolished the law and, and they want to carry out the sacrifices and everything associated with the diets and, and what they call each other. They even use the uh, Yahweh and Jehovah names for Jesus Christ. They don't use Jesus. They say Yeshua or something like that. <clears throat> and a mature leader doesn't need to put down others in order to lead. That's what was happening with these leaders. They were starting to put down Paul saying, he is nothing. You know, the man is timid. He's bold in his letters, but he's timid. And 
Paul is saying he can demolish strongholds, arguments, and pretensions against the knowledge of God. And the way that he does this, and I mentioned this last week, he argues persuasively, he reasons spiritually, and demolishes aggressively. And this is all against the philosophy of the day. Now, we have the philosophy of our day, where we are to be accepting of everything that the intelligentsia puts out there, that the political class says, that the news media says, we're supposed to follow. And if we don't follow that, then, then we are less than being admirable or a good member of society. If somebody wants to be called a they or a them, we're supposed to do that, rather than a he or a she or a girl or a boy or a man or a woman. We're supposed to bow to this type of identification. And then there's some who are pansexual. They are everything. And, and they fall into this category of craziness. This is actually, I believe, a mental disease that somebody would fall into this idea that we are not binary in our existence. Men and women, male and female. But like I said, the intelligentsia would come along and say, you have to buy into the philosophy of the day. And we're supposed to argue against that aggressively. But Paul is referring to here inside the church. And by the way, when I say aggressively, I mean also with gentleness and respect. Paul was able to make a great argument without getting angry. And there were times where Paul got angry. You remember he called the, <clears throat> the high priest a whitewashed sepulcher. Do you think he knew who the high priest was? Even though he said, well, I didn't know he was the high priest. I think sarcasm was just ruling right then. He had his time of sarcasm. Even God has his times of sarcasm from Scripture. And there's a time that is appropriate. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I think that there is, it doesn't say this specifically, but there's a time to be sarcastic and a time not to be sarcastic. That's Bill's version of uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So he argued persuasively. In other words, he knew the word of God and not just know it, but he understood it and he was able to use it like a sword as scripture talks about. In Ephesians chapter 6, he could pull it out and cut just where he needed to. And that's what he would do. He would argue persuasively. And he would reason spiritually. As the scripture was his guide, the spirit of God enlightened him to use the exact words that he used. Even as he penned Second Corinthians. He knew exactly what to do because he was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He was not under the influence of the flesh. So he doesn't use the flesh in reasoning uh, and also to suit his own needs. But this is what the teachers in Second Corinthians that's recorded for us, that's what they were doing. They were using human reasoning in order to get what they wanted. And, you know, I, I recently was struggling with something in my mind, an injustice that had been committed. And I went through in my mind what I would say to each individual that was involved in this. I had it down line and verse and it was going to slice and dice just like I was preparing a gourmet meal with each portion individually cut up in its right proportion I, I was all set to do that it was good but then I realized I would simply be feeding my flesh and I would do a disservice to the individuals that I was trying to put in their place and so I just thought you know I'm just going to let it die I'm not going to do anything if there's anybody that needs defending, if I need defending, the Lord's going to do it. I don't have to worry about it. This is not my problem, and I realize this is God's problem. 
and I'm going to let him handle it. And that's what Paul did most of the time. I think uh, uh, he, he was a, quite a character. You know, he had a very strong, determinative spirit. If he set out to do something, he was going to do it. Remember, he was the persecutor of the church. He was the one that was holding the clothes. Uh, and his name at that time was Saul when Stephen was being stoned. And he gave his approval for such an act. So the guy, he, was, he could be ruthless. And God was able to use even that. Now, just like he was able, at, after he became a believer, to temper his flesh, and it was a constant battle, even in Romans chapter 7, the end of the chapter, he says, the things I want to do are not the things that I do, and vice versa. And, and so he is able to get a hold of that. I was able to do the same thing when I was going through this in my mind. And by the way, when you construct things like that in your mind, it is so satisfying. The flesh just goes, oh, this is going to be good. And, and you can't do that. You can't feed the flesh. So to demolish aggressively, it, it doesn't mean we're to be shy about calling out what is wrong, whether inside the church or outside the church. We need to speak and act boldly against the enemies of God and of unrighteousness and engage in the fight and not in a fight that would lead to arguing because a servant of the Lord must not argue. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and we're supposed to be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. And so you can be stern, not in an aggressive or a pejorative way, but you can be tough and hold your position and say, this is the right thing to do. And that's what God is calling us to do, and that's what Paul did when he was being aggressive and persuasive and spiritual in his argument against those who would come into the church and try to disrupt it or change it. And whether they're doing it just for the sake of making Paul's life miserable or they actually believed what they were saying, Paul is calling it wrong. He calls it all out. And Paul is encouraging the church not to let the false teachers be their shepherds, but to let Christ be their shepherds. Because he, he, even though he goes into chapter 10 and he starts pointing out, and in chapter 11, he starts pointing out his credentials, so to speak. But he calls himself a fool when he starts doing it. He goes, I'm talking like a fool trying to do this. But he's arguing in the same way that these false teachers are arguing. So he's using a technique. He's using the exact same examples of how these men came in and wormed their way into the leadership inside the church. He's making the same type of argument for himself, <clears throat> but he calls it foolishness. And then he goes on in verse 7 and says, you are looking only on the surface of things. I think the King James or the New King James says, are you looking only on the surface of things? Which means we... We judge by the outward appearance. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can only make one first impression? Which is true, because we make judgments about people all the time. The first time you see somebody, you make an impression. <clears throat> I can remember being in Mrs. Petruska's family living class. Mrs. Petruska, uh, she was... Russian or German or I don't know, but she was raised in America. But I think her heritage, her husband, obviously his name was Petruska. You know, if you hear that name, you think Russian. Well, she looked like the name sounds. She was almost, now I don't want to say six foot, but she was just under six foot. And she was built. She was tough. She was a 
big woman. And she would wear this dress and she'd have her red lipstick on. She had short hair and she was trying to instruct us about life, family life. You know, you had those family life classes and you go through the STDs and all of that in the class. But then she started, I remember this distinctly. She taught us what love was. And guess what she used? First Corinthians 13. But she didn't say it was first Corinthians 13. She would say, love is patient, love is kind, love does not keep track of wrongs committed against it. And I didn't know at the time she was using the Bible, but later I realized that that's what she was doing. And this woman's a believer, you know, but she was Petruska. She was also the girl's vice principal. And she, everybody feared her that had to go to her office because she was a big, formidable woman. And and I I don't mean big like uh, she had an overweight problem. She was stocky. She was like a good Russian woman, you know, is, is what she was. And she happened to turn to me. The whole class was there. 30, 35 kids uh, were in the room. And she asked the question, would you date somebody if they come up and asked you? And she was pointing it to the guys. And she turned to me and she said, Bill, would you date a girl that just came up and asked you? And all of a sudden, all the eyes came to me. I hated it. All the eyes are looking at me like, what's he going to say? And I said, well, it depends what she looked like. And the girls just erupted in screams like, how dare he say that? And I said, no, no. And after the, the roar went down, I said, no, wait a second. You girls who are in here. I said, if a guy came up to you and his hair was all greasy, it was unkempt, it kind of smelled, uh, he wasn't very, uh, or he was odorous in his breath. I said, would you date him? Would you go on a date with him? And all of a sudden they all kind of calmed down because they knew as well that first impressions are very important. You know, like these uh Dating apps, I guess you meet the person for the first time or you you can send pictures of who somebody is and sometimes the picture doesn't match up with the actual individual that you see. It was taken from 10 years ago and this is what you're getting now face to face and that first impression is the picture and you go, oh, you know, that's that's who I'm going to be meeting and then you show up and you don't even recognize the person because they're completely different. Now, I wouldn't know anything about this because I'm not on the apps. I just know the first impressions. I know how people have talked about these things and their first impressions misled them on who they are. Have you ever heard somebody on the radio and you try to uh, get an image of your mind of what they look like or talk to somebody on the phone? You talk to somebody on the phone and you hear their voice and all of a sudden you get an impression what it is that they look like. And then I, I remember having this happen, several Bible teachers, I would carry around this thing that was called a Walkman. And a, a Walkman, I could put tapes into the Walkman and I could listen to Bible stories and sermons and things like that. And then I also had a radio on that Walkman and I could listen to messages all day long. And I listened to J. Vernon McGee, and I listened to John MacArthur, and I listened to Chuck Smith and Chuck Swindoll and all these different teachers, and I never knew what they looked like. And then when I found out what each one of them looked like, I go, 
that's not right. They're not supposed to look like that. It's the first impression that we get. And so first impressions can be deceiving and we want to be careful about looking on what's on the surface of things. Now, it, Paul goes back, or I'm going to go back, in chapter 10 he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ I appeal to you. So he's appealing first out of meekness. Now meekness does not mean and I've talked about this before. It means power under control. And it used to be used of a stallion who had been broken. But a stallion who had not been broken could actually hurt you or kill you. But the stallion who had been broken was able to be led and directed. And that's what Paul is using here. This idea of meekness is power under control. And also gentleness, not being an overbearing individual, not ruling ruthlessly, so to speak. And when we look at this, you know, you, you think of the Apostle Paul and the first impressions that people would have of him. Uh, but, <coughs> excuse me, going on, I, I want to continue with this. In verse 7 it says, If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he and so the accusations that were being leveled against Paul was he's not all that spiritual, he's not all that great, he's not all that wonderful, he, he probably, uh, it just makes things up. Now what, after you've read Paul, and we've been going through Second Corinthians here, what's your first impressions of him? What do you think he looks like? Now I've described him before, but there is actually one record of what he looks like, or what he may have looked like, I don't know. Uh, what is the, the truth on this, but it is recorded in the Acts of Paul and Thecla. It is an apocryphal book, and it was written about 150 A.D., so they may have had some type of indication of what Paul actually looked like. Now, for instance, Peter. What do you think Peter looked like? He was probably a fisherman, being Jewish. He probably had curly hair. He could handle the nets. He could bring in the fish. He's probably a man's man, smelled like fish all the time. And, and that's what him and his brother and his cousins, that's what they would do. They would go out fishing, probably stout type of men. Well, Paul, what do you think Paul looked like? What do you think the first impression was? Uh, looking at the first impressions or the things that you see right on the surface, and this is what the Corinthian church was doing. Well, the apostle Paul, you might think, well, he's, he's probably tall like Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament. That was his name, Saul, but God changed his name to Paul. Uh, the word Paul, the name Paul, it means small or humble. So if you get that impression that he was like King Saul, he was probably more like Paul, and it could have been just in his attitude on the inside, small or humble. Now this is the description that is listed in Acts of Paul and Thecla from 150 AD. It says, he is described as small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, it's like he's been riding a horse for all of his life, and his legs were bowed, bandy-legged, well-built, that means he was stocky like a fire plug, with eyebrows meeting in the middle, and rather long-nosed. Now, I try to think of somebody that would be most like him, and the only person I can come up with besides the nose is Danny DeVito. If you know what Danny DeVito looks like, 
this is probably what the Apostle Paul looked like, only with the big nose. Now, when they said, he's nothing to look at, well, they would be right. But on the inside, he had the Spirit of God, and look what he accomplished. And look who God chose to do this through, this work of setting up all the New Testament churches and writing all the New Testament letters, not all of them, but at least 13 of them. This is who God chose. And the first impression that the Corinthian churches had would have is, here comes Danny DeVito walking in, and he's going to tell us what's up. And you have all of these orators which are out there, these people who can speak, these people who were eloquent, and they're probably well-versed in the philosophy of the day, somebody that you'd look to and go, wow, I can listen to him. He's somebody to follow. And then God says, no, not the one. I want Danny DeVito to come in, and I want him to do the work. It's like King Saul. King Saul was head and shoulders over everyone else. And, and when he became the king of Israel, everybody was able to look up to him. You know, I was going through, again, the light and the glory. Uh, I, I listened to that book again by Peter Marshall. If you haven't been through that book, I would recommend that you do it. <clears throat> and it, it just brought to mind so many things of, of how the country was founded and how God used the Puritans and and how the depiction of the Puritans, which is out there, and the, our first exposure to Puritans is Thanksgiving, all in black with the tall hats and the buckle on the hat and that type of thing. And, and when I was reading or go, listening through this again, uh, it, it was such an encouragement to me how God uses the weak and the small and the persecuted in order to accomplish his will. And it was because of a group like the pilgrims that landed at Plymouth that God established this country. And he had uh, so many things in mind. And when you go through a book that is written by a Christian as opposed to a book that is written by a secular author, the, the uh, descriptions are stunningly different. To give you an idea on this, and I'm doing this for the sake of looking at the surface of things, the first impressions. George Washington in the book, The Light and the Glory, uh, he's depicted as an individual who is six foot three, taller than everyone else. During that time, everyone was about five foot seven or below. Uh, all the men were, people were small, but he was tall and he was a natural born leader and he read and journaled from the age of 14. He, he kept all of his letters. And, and in this book, they actually were able to go to Yale and get some of the uh, writings that were about him. And I think also in the Library of Congress, some of the letters that he had written since age 14 were made available. And uh, this one author, Peter Marshall, <clears throat> in The Light of the Glory said, well, some people say they're really not sure if he is a believer or not. Because like Abe Lincoln, he was a believer in God, but he never went to church. And several of the founding fathers, they were deists. And, and so it comes into question whether or not George Washington was a believer. Well, in the book, they start quoting several of his personal letters, how he is a believer in Jesus Christ, how he has repented of his sins, how he is not worthy of the, the um, place he, he has gained in society. And a very humble man, very tall and stout man, but <clears throat> very humble on the inside. And then I was listening to another biography of the founding fathers about uh, Thomas <clears throat> excuse me, not, uh, Hamilton. 
about Hamilton and about Benjamin Franklin, and it got over to Washington. And in the light and the glory, it says this one battle that was taking place against the French and the Indians, uh, this Indian chief wanted to meet Washington because, and I think I've told you this story before, but uh, where he knew, this Indian chief knew that he had shot him twice with no doubt in his mind. He knew how to shoot and he shot him twice. Washington's horse was shot from out from under him and the Indian chief wanted to see the man who God would not let die. And in the light and the glory, it says, uh, it's taken from some of his letters, that he was shot four times in his coat. There were bullet holes in his coat four times, four different holes that went in one side and out the other. But yet he was never killed with a bullet. You go to the secular biography, which is there, and it says, oh, and apparently he had some shrapnel in his coat. And, and they were coming from two different perspectives. And one was the providence of God. And the other one is just how things work out. And he was so lucky. And when you read something or you listen to somebody and you get the first impression, it just depends on who you're listening to and what perspective they come to and, and what or come from and what background they have. And so we have to be careful in discerning what is truth and what is error. And so we always have to be avoiding the surface of things, judging on what's on the surface as opposed to what truth is. And God can guide us in that. He promises to do so. And so with first impressions, although we all make judgments on first impressions, we need to be careful because we may not be getting exactly what we think we should be getting, like the Apostle Paul. I wanted him to be a tall man that could just duke it out with the best of them, both philosophically and physically if need be, that type of thing. But that's not the Apostle Paul, and that's not who he chose. And with all of that, that is... Encouragement for us. Can God really use me? You know, I've, I'm old, I'm creaky on the inside, I'm prone to being sick, and will people actually listen to something that I have to say, and why should I open my mouth? Kind of like Moses, God, I stutter, why should I go? And God showed up to kill him, and his wife interceded and circumcised his son and took the foreskin and touched it to the toes of his feet, and it's like, who is this guy? That God chose Moses and like King David, you know, went through uh, when Samuel showed up to see who would be king because God told him to go to the line of Jesse and it's one of his sons and goes through all the sons. And, and he, uh, Paul thought the first impression of the first son, oh, there, certainly that's a king right there. Look how tall and handsome he is. He could be king. And now is this little red haired kid probably had some freckles that was watching the sheep and he was king. God says, I'm going to choose the, the lowly things of this life to do his work. That's what he chooses to do. And so that's why it's encouraging for us. So back in verse 7, if anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. One other thing that I found out, they thought that he might have had a high squeaky voice as well. And, and so if you can imagine putting all of those elements of who Paul was together along with the squeaky voice that might be a little bit irritating, but the things that he could argue for were just 
incredible. <clears throat> well, that's who Paul chose. Now, uh, he was able and willing to impose discipline. And this mental picture that we have of Paul, you would think, well, how can he do this being so small and seemingly ineffective or ineffectual, I guess, is the word. Well, we know that in Damascus, he was able to argue with some Jews who were there. And what I mean by argue is give an apology for Jesus being the Christ. And apologia is the word. In Acts chapter 9, verse 22, and this is before God changed his name to Paul, he says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So he had all of these Jews that were there that were steeped in the Old Testament in the ways of the law and everything that God uh, represented through his word, and he was able to make a defense that Jesus was the Christ, and it says he baffled them. Now, words for baffled, if you wanted to get synonyms, he confused them, threw them into disorder. They were mystified, stumped, bewildered, flummoxed, and bamboozled. That's what Paul was able to do by the Spirit of God in him, this high, squeaky, balding, short, stocky guy was able to make the case. In verse 12, he goes on, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with someone who commend, with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Now, we all do this as well. We look at somebody else and we think on some level, yeah, I'm a little bit better than that. Uh, I don't do those things. I don't carry on in such a manner. I'm a little more well-kept on the outside in, in my home and they're always such a mess and they're always so disorderly and whether it's in their actions at work or it's the way they keep their household or it's the way that they speak all of those things we make judgments like i'm a little better and if you go to other parts of town you might look at other people and say oh they're a little bit better than me if you go a little bit north here in north county uh, north county is not south county south county is not east county East County is not Pacific Beach and Mission Beach. And, of course, Pacific Beach is known as the party city in San Diego. And all you have to do is go down there on a weekend and see how that lays itself out. And it's easy for Christians to go down there and say, I'm not like one of these guys down here and all this partying that's going on. And the people in North County may be able to look at East County and say, I'm not part of East County over there. Uh, And... East County might say, well, we're not part of South County, Chula Vista, and San Ysidro, and all that's not part of us. And so we judge ourselves, we class ourselves, we put ourselves by our own standards. We say, I have a standard, and I'm going to compare myself to my standard. And Paul says, that's not good. And, And Paul says, we are supposed to judge ourselves by Christ. If Christ is the standard... How do we compare to Christ? All of a sudden, it's a level playing field. We don't look at ourselves in a prideful manner. Remember, he appealed through meekness and gentleness because he understood the state in which he resided in this earth. 
in the sight of Christ. Christ is all good. He is all powerful. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And what do we know? Nothing. We are so bad. God has to destroy our bodies. And I came to this realization the other day. I don't know why, but I was experiencing terrible vertigo. And there is this um, movement that you can do to relieve the vertigo. I don't know if you guys know this, but on the inside, in your inner ear, you have rocks in there. Did you ever, somebody ever tell you you have rocks in your head? Well, you do. You have rocks in your head, and they're, they're in your ear canal. They're made of calcium. And if these little rocks, if they get moved inside your inner ear, it can cause you to experience vertigo or be dizzy. And there's this move. You can look it up. It's called the Epley Maneuver. And it's where you take your head and you stick it at a 45 degree and you lay back with a pillow under your shoulder and or somebody holds your head and they hold it in a position and they turn it the other way. Then you got to turn your shoulders and then you got to come up and it's supposed to reset the rocks in your head. Well, I, I had this done once years ago. It wasn't too severe and, and it worked. You know, I, I didn't have any dizziness after that. Well, at 3.27 in the morning, I woke up and I was just spinning. And I go, I better get up and do this Epley maneuver. So I did. (coughs) I got up, I did this Epley maneuver, and I turned to one side and I I got up and I thought, well, I I don't know if that worked. I I still feel a little dizzy. And so I tried it again. Instantly, violently sick. Could not stand up stumbling to try to get to a container of some type. It was just absolutely horrendous to do that. And I go, what is going on here? Never experienced anything like this this last week at all. And so I, I talked to Pat, you know, texting Pat about it. He goes, well, you know what Kaiser told me is sit on the bed and fall down on either side and hopefully those rocks will get back into place. And I'm going, okay. And I, I went to see an acupuncture guy who helped me with it before and he wasn't there, but an assistant helped me and they gave me some herbs. Not that kind of herb, but they gave me some herbs uh, to use and, and try to correct things and some homeopathic stuff. And I, I'm much better today uh, than I was back then but as i was experiencing that and i was suffering through the worst of it and i was laying down in my bed i thought to myself my body is gonna do what it wants and i have no control over it and god says i got to destroy that body because that body does what it wants and you have no control of it over it and he says it's worthless we are actually harmful and so i I kind of came to this realization, I'm inside this body, I am trapped, and it's going to do what it wants to do. And when it wants to quit, I can't stop it. I have no control over this body, which is here. And, and that's what God tells us to do, is from the inside, subdue the body, crucify it. But the body is going to do what it wants to do. And God says, I'm going to give you a new one. And I started thinking about that. Will I have control over that new body like I don't have control over this body? And it was just something I, I started going, wow, God, I, I get a new body and it's going to be much better than this one as I was suffering through it. 
And so this idea of, of looking at who I am and how good I am and how helpful I am and all of that stuff, it's immaterial. It doesn't matter. God is going to wipe it all away. I don't want to compare myself with somebody else. This, this body is utterly worthless. <clears throat> and the things that I think, even on the inside, the sinful nature on the inside, God says he's going to get rid of that. <clears throat> but that is what the teachers, the Judaizers, the Gnostics who were inside the church at Corinth, that's what they were uh, being judged by, and that's how they judged others. And so the people in Corinth, they were saying, oh, these people are wonderful, and they started listening to them. And Paul writes this letter and says, no, this is not so good. In verse 13, it says, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did not get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. He's being a little sarcastic here. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in regions far beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory. And this is what cults do. Cults will move in to a church, they will propagate the false doctrine and they will siphon off people for themselves, a following all for themselves. This is what Joseph Smith did. He declared all churches to be anathema, that none of them is righteous, and that's what he did. Taz Russell, he also did that with the Jehovah Witnesses. And all of these individuals who would have a tendency to stir up and cause trouble for the cause of Christ, that's how they come in. And they, they distort the doctrine. And that's what Paul was working against. And, and we want to make sure we're able to recognize false doctrine, false teachings, false apostles, those with impure motives. And Lord willing, he will give some in the body of Christ the spirit of discernment to know what spirit somebody is of. But verse 17 going on says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So people were patting themselves on the back like, look what I have done, the accomplishments I have made, and they list all of the criteria that makes them capable of leading the church in Corinth. And Paul here, he is quoting Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 through 24. He says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength. Or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. And these days I delight, declares the Lord. So this, this is what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to become like Paul, small and humble. And when we decrease, Christ increases. This is where Paul is leading us in this particular chapter. The next chapter, he starts talking like an admitted, self-confessed fool because he starts using the same technique that those people who are in the church of Corinth are using to gain a foothold in there. May God bless you with wisdom to discern what is right and wrong. May he fill you with his spirit that you may be able to properly use the word to combat those with false philosophies and false ways of life. And may he strengthen you for the task which lie ahead. 
because we are living in days which anyone could call evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us insight beyond our years. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us not to forsake it, not to buy in for the sake of familial relationships that we may have, to just keep the peace, to not speak about what is right and what is wrong and who has the truth and who does not. Help us, Lord, to be bold for you, but with gentleness and respect. And we know that if we live a godly life, that we will suffer persecution just like your son Jesus did. And Father, we ask that your blessing would rest upon everyone here until we meet each other again Christmas Eve, 630, where we may celebrate the birth of your son Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And the church said...